Chapter sixty nine of Romola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Goldfarb. Chapter sixty nine Homeward. In those silent wintry hours when Romola lay resting from her weariness, her mind travelling back over the past and gazing across the undefined distance of the future, saw all objects from a new position. Her experience since the moment of her waking in the boat had come to her with as strong an effect as that of the fresh seal on the dissolving wax. She had felt herself without bonds, without motive, sinking in mere egoistic complaining that life could bring her no content, feeling a right to say, I am tired of life, I want to die. That thought had sobbed within her as she fell asleep, but from the moment after her waking when the cry had drawn her, she had not even reflected, as she used to do in Florence, that she was glad to live because she could lighten sorrow. She had simply lived. With so energetic an impulse to share the life around her, to answer the call of need and do the work which cried aloud to be done, that the reasons for living, enduring, laboring, never took the form of argument. The experience was like a new baptism to Romola. In Florence, the simpler relations of the human being to his fellow men had been complicated for her with all the special ties of marriage, the state, and religious discipleship, and when these had disappointed her trust, the shock seemed to have shaken her aloof from life and stunned her sympathy. But now, she said, it was mere baseness in me to desire death. If everything else is doubtful, this suffering that I can help is certain. If the glory of the cross is an illusion, the sorrow is only the truer. While the strength is in my arm, I will stretch it out to the fainting. While the light visits my eyes, they shall seek the forsaken. And then the past arose with a fresh appeal to her. Her work in this green valley was done, and the emotions that were disengaged from the people immediately around her rushed back into the old deep channels of use and affection. That rare possibility of self-contemplation which comes in any complete severance from our wanted life made her judge herself as she had never done before. The compunction which is inseparable from a sympathetic nature keenly alive to the possible experience of others began to stir in her with growing force. She questioned the justness of her own conclusions, of her own deeds. She had been rash, arrogant, always dissatisfied that others were not good enough, while she herself had not been true to what her soul had once recognized as the best. She began to condemn her flight. After all, it had been cowardly self-care. The grounds on which Savonarola had once taken her back were truer, deeper than the grounds she had had for her second flight. How could she feel the needs of others, and not feel above all the needs of the nearest? But then came reaction against such self-reproach. The memory of her life with Tito, of the conditions which made their real union impossible, while their external union imposed a set of false duties on her, which were essentially the concealment and sanctioning of what her mind revolted from, told her that flight had been her only resource. All minds, except such as are delivered from doubt by dullness of sensibility, must be subject to this recurring conflict, where the many twisted conditions of life have forbidden the fulfillment of a bond. For, in strictness, there is no replacing of relations. The presence of the new does not nullify the failure and breach of the old. Life has lost its perfection, it has been maimed, and until the wounds are quite scarred, conscience continually casts backward, doubting glances. 
Romola shrank with dread from the renewal of her proximity to Tito, and yet she was uneasy that she had put herself out of reach of knowing what was his fate, uneasy that the moment might yet come when he would be in misery and need her. There was still a thread of pain within her, testifying to those words of Fra Girolamo that she could not cease to be a wife. Could anything utterly cease for her that had once mingled itself with the current of her heart's blood? Florence, and all her life there, had come back to her like hunger. Her feelings could not go wandering after the possible and the vague. Their living fibre was fed with the memory of familiar things. And the thought that she had divided herself from them forever became more and more importunate in these hours that were unfilled with action. What if Fra Girolamo had been wrong? What if the life of Florence was a web of inconsistencies? Was she, then, something higher, that she should shake the dust from off her feet and say, This world is not good enough for me? If she had been really higher, she would not so easily have lost all her trust. Her indignant grief for her godfather had no longer complete possession of her, and her sense of debt to Savonarola was recovering predominance. Nothing that had come or was to come could do away with the fact that there had been a great inspiration in him which had waked a new life in her. Who, in all her experience, could demand the same gratitude from her as he? His errors, might they not bring calamities? She could not rest. She hardly knew whether it was her strength returning with the budding leaves that made her active again, or whether it was her eager longing to get nearer Florence. She did not imagine herself daring to enter Florence, but the desire to be near enough to learn what was happening there urged itself with a strength that excluded all other purposes. And one March morning the people in the valley were gathered together to see the Blessed Lady depart. Jacopo had fetched a mule for her and was going with her over the mountains. The Padre, too, was going with her to the nearest town, that he might help her in learning the safest way by which she might get to Pistoia. Her store of trinkets and money, untouched in this valley, was abundant for her needs. If Romola had been less drawn by the longing that was taking her away, it would have been a hard moment for her when she walked along the village street for the last time, while the Padre and Jacopo with the mule were awaiting her near the well. Her steps were hindered by the wailing people, who knelt and kissed her hands, then clung to her skirts and kissed the grey folds, crying, "'Ah, why will you go, when the good season is beginning and the crops will be plentiful? Why will you go?' "'Do not be sorry,' said Romola. "'You are well now, and I shall remember you.' I must go and see if my own people want me. Ah, yes, if they have the pestilence. Look at us again, Madonna. Yes, yes, we will be good to the little Benedetto. At last Romola mounted her mule, but a vigorous screaming from Benedetto as he saw her turn from him in this new position was an excuse for all the people to follow her and insist that he must ride on the mule's neck to the foot of the slope. The parting must come at last, but as Romola turned continually before she passed out of sight, she saw the little flock lingering to catch the last waving of her hand. End of chapter 69